Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, clearly, this is a very busy week in politics, both in Washington and here across the state of Georgia, with campaigns continuing to move forward toward the 2022 election. And um, you you all know, I think, that this morning, uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson will appear once again before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, today, she'll begin answering questions from the committee after a day of opening statements yesterday. And so let me tell you what we're going to do to help you uh, uh, deal with all that's happening. Political Rewind will go on as usual this week. And, of course, one of the subjects we'll talk about will be the Supreme Court nominating process. Um, If you want to uh, listen or watch the hearings from the very beginning, they started at nine this morning, just go to gpb.org and we're streaming the hearing there. When Political Rewind ends today, we will pick up the hearings on GPB radio and you'll be able to follow them there throughout the day. Hope that makes sense. Um, And it's a way for us to continue bringing state political news as well as keep you informed of what's happening in the Senate Judiciary Committee. That said, let's get right to our panel today. Uh, It's Tuesday. That means my partner from the AJC is Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Tamar, how are you today? Hey, Bill. Doing great. Thanks for having me. A terrific show today. I'm so glad you're here as we talk to our two very special panelists, one of them, the former mayor of the city of Atlanta, Shirley Franklin. Shirley Franklin, it's really a pleasure to have you back on the show. It's been quite a while, and we always love it when we get a chance to talk to you. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thanks so much for having me. Um, And we're going to talk also with Sam Olins, the former attorney general of the state of Georgia, the former chairman of the Cobb County Commission. And Sam, I think it's fair to say that I know that you and Shirley Franklin have continued to have a friendship, uh, if not a working relationship. But back when you were Cobb County chair and uh, Mayor Franklin was mayor of Atlanta, you two worked as partners on so many issues that affected the region, correct? Yeah, absolutely. We uh, we, we certainly have some different political um, opinions, but we always found the the opportunity and the way to uh, work together constructively. Well, it's great to get you here. Shirley, do you want to weigh in on that? (laughs) Well, I would say that um, I get a lot of credit for the water and sewer issues in the city of Atlanta. But had it not been for Sam's leadership at the regional level uh, and understanding the implications of um, the city's water issues for the region, we probably would not have been successful. He was a tremendous partner uh, to me and the city and really to the whole region around the issues of water. Uh, we should point out to our listeners who aren't familiar with what you're talking about, when during your tenure as mayor, you were confronted with a federal court order which required that you would spend some $3 billion to redo, renovate, uh, fix 
the city's sewer systems. It was a daunting task, and you had to figure out a way to raise that money and maintain your political base, and you managed to, to do that. And I think people need to remember that was a, an amazing accomplishment, Mayor Franklin. <laughs> well, thanks a lot. But as, again, as I say, um, Sam was among the first to understand uh, the implications of the federal judge saying uh, that he would cut off uh, sewer hookups in the region if, in fact, the city could not solve uh, its problems. And he went to bat um, for the city uh, with the legislature and among uh, our colleagues. It was not as easy. It was not easy for him to do that, but it was much appreciated. And he and I share emails from time to time about what's going on with water in the region, just to uh, well, refresh our memories. Well, thank you. But we, we, thank you. But we, we helped in a lot of areas. I remember during the drought, uh, Mayor Franklin and I um, took the lead with the retrofit of toilets, another subject that wasn't um, what you think of in elected officials, but we needed to do a much better job of water conservation. We also worked on the region's first uh, regional transit model, which is now a large part of the ATL. Um, and uh, and I remember I was uh, kidding the mayor. Uh, we had a meeting in, at the time, Governor Perdue's office when we got a very bad decision from Judge Magnuson regarding the water wars where uh, Governor Perdue said, uh, so look, uh, Mayor Franklin, uh, Chairman Olins, uh, we all have to be on the same team here. And uh, we told the governor that we were on the same team and stayed on that same team to help the uh, the city, the region, and the state um, move in forward in what's now been some great successes uh, with regard to, to water and water quality. Um, all right. I, you know, I, I hope we get a chance to talk a little more about that later in the show, because you two are an example of working across partisan lines to accomplish things that matter. And um, unfortunately, uh, tomorrow we know full well that that is happening less and less these days. Yes. Absolutely. And I mean, just to close the circle on the water stuff, to add the little bit I could as somebody who started covering Georgia about six years ago, I covered that water wars trial that, you know, when Florida sued Georgia at the Supreme Court. And for a while, it was looking like they were going to go after water usage in, in metro Atlanta, in addition to what farms in southwest Georgia was doing. And Florida ultimately abandoned its claims against metro Atlanta because it, you know, it, it just appeared that they didn't have, you know, kind of feet that they could stand on because metro Atlanta did such a good job. So I think it's kind of a testament to the work that you guys were able to do. Georgia ultimately won that case. Okay, um, let's see if we can talk a little bit about bipartisanship a little bit later in the show. But, but you know, Shirley Franklin, while we have you here, it strikes me this we couldn't ask for a better day to have you here with the Supreme Court hearings uh, underway at, at the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, the first African-American woman nominated to the Supreme Court likely to win approval and serve on the court. And you, of course, were not only the first female mayor of the city of Atlanta back in 2002 when you won your first election, you were the first African-American female mayor of any, um, of, of any city and the first uh, 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 and had first of so many kinds and all that. So, Mayor Franklin, let me play for you and the, and the rest of the panel just one of the sound bites from um, 
Judge uh, Jackson's opening statement yesterday and use that as an opportunity just to talk about the historic nature of her uh, nomination. And Sam uh, Burmistos, let's listen to another, uh, the, the uh, bite labeled another uh, uh, soundbite, please. Even prior to today, I can honestly say that my life has been blessed beyond measure. The first of my many blessings is the fact that I was born in this great nation. A little over 50 years ago in September of 1970, Congress had enacted two civil rights acts in the decade before, and like so many who had experienced lawful racial segregation firsthand, my parents, Johnny and Ellery Brown, left their hometown of Miami, Florida, and moved to Washington, D.C. to experience new freedom. My parents taught me that unlike the many barriers that they had had to face growing up, my path was clearer so that if I worked hard and I believed in myself in America, I could do anything or be anything I wanted to be. Shirley Franklin, what do you think when you hear that sound? Well, that was a terrific statement. I did, like millions of Americans, watch that statement yesterday. Um, I've lived long enough to know there's still more firsts. And um, to have an African-American woman um, nominated to the Supreme Court is a very big deal for this country. And the beauty of the democracy is that our democracy keeps evolving. We keep opening up. And we keep understanding that there are people and voices that need to be heard at every level, both of government, business, and the not-for-profit sector. So I'm very, I'm very excited for Judge Jackson. But more importantly, I'm very excited for my new granddaughter, who was born just a few weeks ago, who is going <laughs> to grow up in um, a country, um, hopefully with a Judge Jackson on the bench, uh, and as a symbol of what can be accomplished. Well, Mazel Tov about the uh, birth of your granddaughter. Um, let me ask you a quick question uh, before we move on. When you ran your mayoral campaign, you'd already had years of experience in city government. You were well known for your work. What kind of barriers, at, beyond just running for mayor, how do you relate to what she talks about when she talks about the barriers that were up? You're of the generation where you had to deal with all of those barriers. Well, I dealt with some of those barriers. Um, um, I grew up in the Northeast, so I was not experiencing um, the Jim Crow laws, but I knew about them. And just knowing about Jim Crow and knowing about the barriers to voting, the barriers to housing, also made me, I mean, it it makes you gun shy and fearful that maybe you're overstepping your bounds. So you have to overcome that. Um, and you, with, unless you have a supportive community um, that is helping you to overcome that, you can get stuck in what what is seems impossible um, for someone um, of of difference, an African American in my case, or a woman in my case. I had early exposures to uh, women and African Americans who were fighting for human rights and civil rights. And they actually, their lives inspire me to this day. Mm-hmm. Sam Olins, um, one of the things about her opening statement yesterday uh, uh, is that she really 
positioned herself as having a true American story. It's what she talks about when she says her parents told her that she was now uh, living in a country, thanks to the passage of the civil rights laws of the mid-60s, where you could accomplish anything you chose to do. And it strikes me that was an important part of what her message was to begin with, to say, uh, if there are people on this panel who want to make me fe- seem like I'm somehow an outlier, uh, radical liberal, um, here's what I'm here to tell you. I'm one of you. My story is your story. Yes? Well, absolutely. And also when she talked about how uh, her judicial philosophy was one where you uh, were independent and you looked totally at the law and the Constitution, that was also geared towards that um, discussion. But I mean, candidly, um, even though a few of the Republican senators may, senators may seek to um, go after her, I think it's very clear that she is an extremely competent, bright jurist. Um, and my guess is that at the end of this week, um, she's going to shine and she's going to sail through as she should. Look, and you you look at the math in the Senate, Democrats don't need any Republican help to to get her nomination through the chamber. Uh, But I think it would say a lot if she was able to win over a couple of Republicans. Of course, when uh, Judge Jackson was was nominated for the federal appeals court bench, bench, she won three Republican votes. Um, I think if she were to get any, that might be kind of about the number that that she could get in this really divided Senate. Uh, But kind of going off of what, what Sam just said, her opening statement seemed very much trying to insulate herself from many of the attacks that she knows are going to come from Republicans. It seems like many Republican senators ended up kind of backing off some of the rhetoric we've seen from conservative uh, groups lately that have talked about uh, Judge Jackson being a black woman, how Democrats were looking to kind of fill a quota um, of diversity, how this might be affirmative action. Um, I think a lot of Republican senators knew that that wasn't a good avenue to to go down. Uh, and so now it'll be interesting to see when they go after her on policy, how effectively Judge Jackson will be able to kind of bat that away. And in her opening statement, she did a kind of good job of talking about how she's going to keep an open mind. It'll be different these next two days when we're, we're going more back and forth on questioning, though. Uh, Tomorrow, uh, Senator Ossoff, John Ossoff, is a member of the Judiciary Committee. He uh, had his opportunity, as did all the other members of the committee, to make opening statements yesterday. Um, he conjured up two Georgia stories in, uh, in his remarks. One, he said, for anybody out there who believes that our civil rights mission has been fulfilled, uh, please remember what happened in the Ahmaud Arbery case, where uh, at first white prosecutors had no intention of pursuing charges against the men eventually convicted of murdering Ahmaud Arbery. Uh, it was only in, uh, when an outcry arose in the community uh, that uh, they, they were forced to move forward. Uh, and then he said anybody who doubts it also should realize that uh, the length of an election of a line in a, at, a, at a polling booth is usually based on the color of your skin. But then he went on to talk a little bit more broadly, and let's listen to what he had to say. In practice, the promises made in the plain text of our Constitution are still too often broken for too many of our fellow Americans. And so the court remains essential to that national process of becoming in real life what America is in text. 
Today's hearing, Judge Jackson, is evidence that this process continues. And above all, a testament to you personally, that in a nation still striving to transcend the legacies of slavery and segregation and institutionalized racism, through your brilliance and resilience and hard work, you have already rendered great service to the nation as a federal judge. And as a black woman, you have overcome deeply rooted obstacles to earn nomination to our nation's highest court for the first time in history. Um, Sam Olins, uh, ob- obviously he's a yes vote um, on this committee. <clears throat> Do you think that many of the Republicans on the committee are, uh, are, are mindful of the things that she herself said about the barriers that her family had to overcome, the things that Ossoff mentioned? And are they going to be they're all cautious. We already know that, that Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz may really go after her. What are the risks, just from a political point of view, Republicans take in being too strident in these hearings? Well, there clearly are risks. I mean, let's face it, there's been an uptick in the number of minority voters who have chosen a Republican candidate in the last several years. And if it appears to be venomous uh, with regard to her being an African-American woman, uh, there's potentially a pretty significant um, response that could hurt both this November and two years thereafter. Um, I think you're going to see the vast majority of the Republican leadership in the Senate demonstrate the exact opposite, which is they want to be very professional with her. Unlike, candidly, some of the last um, Senate judiciary hearings that were very unfair uh, to the nominees. Uh, in In a perfect world, which, of course, we don't live in by far, um, the issue before the committee would be competence, with them with deference being given to the administration but more and more in the last decade or two we've seen competence pushed aside in the name of politics which is very unfortunate as we look at the public's need to um, support the supreme court Shirley Franklin, uh, let me bring you into this and let me add one element and then tomorrow you too should comment on this um, the, we're long past the days when uh, judiciary, the Senate Judiciary Committee and then the full Senate uh, w- looked at ju- justices, uh, potential justices, nominees uh, with bipartisan lens. Uh, but back in the day, Strom Thurmond actually voted for Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, to uh, win approval to uh, sit on the Supreme Court. And Ted Kennedy actually voted for Antonin Scalia. Um, <laughs> representing polar opposites from the, the uh, feelings that they had, their political ideologies. We've, we're no longer in those days at all. Is that a good thing or a bad thing, Shirley Franklin? Well, it's clearly a bad thing that we don't have uh, more open dialogue about um, um, the qualifications. Um, and this was a long time, this, this was a long time ago, but I, I sat at the dinner table many a Sunday in my father and mother and grandmother and grandfather. My grandfather and father were Republicans. My grandmother and mother were Democrats. And I was the only child, so I was really asked my opinion. But I heard a lot of opinions uh, in the 1950s um, from both sides. But I believe that in this case, 
in this particular case, and in the case of Supreme Court justices, the four of them would have been on the same page because they would have believed that it was important to have both competence and independence, and they would have trusted that you could get that from someone with Judge Jackson's qualifications. Um, In some ways, um, we are making up for decades of exclusion of women generally and Mm -hmm. African-American women and women of color in high positions. And it is hard for some, um, even those in power who are very knowledgeable, to acknowledge that they have to make a change, that America is a different place today than it was uh, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, and that women in particular are, go- are not going to give up, nor are African-American or other people of color, on their rights to be represented at every level of government. And I think whichever party um, tries to go against that trend in political thought is going to find itself hard- having a harder, harder time to actually advance whatever their political interests are. People will not forget what happened. Um, anytime soon uh, to Judge Jackson and whether, in fact, there was an openness to her qualifications and competence. What's so clear to me is how, of course, this nomination is is not done in a vacuum and how, you know, the, the memories in Washington, you know, Republicans are immediately talking about, well, we're, well, we're going to treat her better than the way Democrats treated Brett Kavanaugh. And then Democrats say, well, but what about what did you do to Merrick Garland? And then Republicans are talking about, well, Democrats were really horrible to Clarence Thomas, of course, the uh, the second ever black justice. They, they talk about other kind of thwarted nominees for the Supreme Court, Miguel Estrada, Janice Rogers Brown. And so we've just gotten to this point now where mistrust has run so high that I think no matter what, even somebody with the most sterling credentials, somebody just like Judge Judge Jackson, um, kind of no matter what, it's hard for, for these senators to approach anybody with a fully open mind, kind of divorced from politics at all. Even somebody like Lindsey Graham, who historically among Republicans has been pretty deferential to even what Democratic presidents have wanted. I remember he, he was, uh, I believe he gave Obama uh, both of his choices for Supreme Court. Uh, but even with this, he was saying, I'm not you know, suggested that he was angry that President Biden didn't select a uh, a black female uh, judge from South Carolina. So even those Republicans who were willing to cross over previously um, may not do it this time. Um, I do think as long as you brought up Clarence Thomas briefly there, Tamara, it is worth pointing out. I covered the Clarence Thomas hearings. I was in Washington throughout those, and it was an extraordinarily dramatic uh, series of uh, of hearings. But What's interesting about that is, yes, while Republicans can point to saying that he was mistreated, it's interesting that, in fact, Tamar, uh, Joe Biden, for years after the Clarence Thomas uh, confirmation, uh, paid a price for not being tougher on Clarence Thomas and as chairman of the Judiciary Committee, allowing it to go through despite Anita Hill's very uh, alarmist charges against him. Exactly. For his treatment of Anita Hill, especially kind of now looking at it through the lens of of me, too. Um, certainly that's something that's that's bitten him. So, of course, that kind of contributes to the calculations that everybody has right now politically. Um, and it certainly will be contentious no matter what. 
Sam Olus, before we move on, let me ask you from your point of view as an attorney. What, one of the things that some of the Republicans on the committee, and we shouldn't forget that Josh Hawley, uh, Ted Cruz, m- maybe a couple other Republicans on the committee may be positioning themselves for a presidential run in the same way uh, that back in the Kavanaugh hearings, uh, we saw uh, Amy Klobuchar, Cory Booker using the hearings, you know, to set themselves up for presidential runs. So it goes both ways. But what I started to say, Sam Olins, is um, this accusation that because she was a public defender who was involved in defending cr- criminal cases, uh, somehow she's soft on crime. I, I'm curious, isn't that part of the judicial system of the United States to give a defense to all those who come before the bar, the bench? So, Bill, it's really no different than those Democrats that were critical of Judge Childs because she represented corporations. You know, oh, my God, if you represent corporations, then how do you care about the normal people? And then the opposite, of course, is with Judge Jackson. You know, the fact of the matter is a well-rounded judge is the ideal Supreme Court justice. And I was looking at a chart the other day, actually yesterday, you know, Judge Jackson would be once confirmed the eighth that previously was on the Court of Appeals, eighth of nine. She would be the second that was a trial judge. And many of us think that that's really invaluable experience. the majority of the justices clerked for a Supreme Court justice. She would be included. One of the areas I'm not too thrilled about, however, is uh, she once again continues the legion of Ivy Leaguers who are going on the court, mm. such that Justice Barrett's the only one that wasn't in an Ivy League school. And I, I don't have the position that if you didn't go to the Ivy League school, you shouldn't be a Supreme Court justice. I think we need to get over that. Um, But, I mean, candidly, the Supreme Court is not the place that you want justices to hear cases that they're totally unfamiliar with that area of law. And I think she has the ability to to really round out the court very nicely uh, and to assist other justices with their thought uh, making on these cases. Shirley Franklin, before we have to get to a break and move on to other subjects, uh, give us your final thoughts on this uh, nominating process unfolding this week. I I was intrigued by an article I think we all read uh, in the New York Times in her early days at Harvard um, around the display of a Confederate flag and the demonstrations that ensued among students, black and white students, um, over that flag. Uh, the display. Uh, she was a uh, galvanizing voice around continuing to do the work in class and not disrupt, disrupting the university to the point um, that the reason they were there to get an education was disrupted. I thought that was a very interesting insight into her personality. She was a young woman, 18, 19, 20 years old. Uh, and she has demonstrated over time uh, this ability to bring people together, both to understand the value of protest, but also to understand the value of compromise. So I think she'll be a great addition to the court. 
Um, Tamar Haller, but before the break, we should. Po- I had the same response. I thought that her experience in, in her undergraduate days at Harvard over the Confederate flag issue really was um, uh, telling about her personality. But Tamar Hallerman, that is exactly the way that Shirley Franklin, as mayor of Atlanta, and her mentor before her, Andy Young, as mayor of Atlanta, approached their jobs. They And for that matter, so did Sam Olins when he was chair of the Cobb County Commission. They had their partisan views, um, and but they knew how to let things develop in a much more uh, practical uh, way that allowed for collaboration. Exactly. And I think that she knows how closely watched she's going to be should she be confirmed as the first black woman to serve on the court. Um, you know, you, you've got to not only <laughs> you got to be the best in, in every way. Um, and I think her career has shown that she's excelled. And, and I'm sure on the court, you know, it, it'll be interesting to, to see how she approaches it, especially in such, um, you know, divided times where I think People have tried to make what, what was supposed to be an apolitical body even more political. And especially when, when Republican senators ask her about it, whether she wants to expand the court, add more seats. You know, she's done a, a good job of kind of tempering expectations and trying to back away from that debate. But it'll be hard to, to stay out of it. All right. Let's get to our first break of the show. Uh, and we'll come back with uh, more as we turn to uh, state and local politics on Political Rewind. <laughs> Two quick notes as we continue today. First, uh, again, if you are interested in watching the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings, uh, they are now streaming on gpb.org website. Um, As soon as this show ends at uh, 10, uh, we will uh, go to the hearings at uh, GPB uh, Radio, and you'll be able to pick up on them. And that's the way we're going to proceed throughout this week, because we know you care about state and local politics as you do about national politics as well. The other quick note, tomorrow's uh, uh, Political Rewind Newsletter Day. I'm working on it after the show today. If you're not a subscriber, we'd love to have you join us. You can do it by going to gpb.org slash newsletter. Okay, all that said, um, former mayor of Atlanta, Shirley Franklin, former attorney general of Georgia, Sam Olins, and AJC senior reporter, Tamar Hallerman, uh, joined me today. Um, Tamar, let's move forward. Uh, let's look at the uh, the uh, offensive that, or maybe it's a defensive strategy, uh, Fair Fight and other voting rights groups are now mounting a campaign to try to defeat the new election bill, which uh, the legislature is moving forward with. And one of the, uh, there was a full page ad in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, I think on Sunday, which asked the question of why did Governor Kemp promise the State Chamber of Commerce he would not support any election, new election laws? This session apparently changed his mind and uh, uh, to say he is going to support a bill which will make the GBI a primary agency investigating election issues in the state, will allow for hand inspections of, of actual ballots and other measures which the voting rights groups are very worried about. Tamar? 
Yeah, I mean, this bill seems to be moving super fast um, through the legislature. And and to me, what's not clear, and maybe Sam will be able to shed some light on this, is just how significant it would be um, giving GBI the ability to initiate these investigations. I know that right now that's under the jurisdiction of the Secretary of State's office and the State Election Board. Um, and and to me, what's what's still not clear is how significant that is. There are other things in this in this bill that I think. Um, there is a little more agreement on, such as like making it a crime if you're tampering with, or you know, you're kind of getting in the way of poll workers. I think there's some things like, uh, you know, kind of logging who has custody of ballots. That's perhaps a little less controversial. But Sam, do you have any thoughts on this GBI switch? Now, I think the GBI section of the bill is the least controversial. Um, the GBI is called on all the time by state agencies. Um, Certainly, the Secretary of State's office has had their assistance in the past, uh, and I think that that's a part of the bill that, that, that frankly, um, should not be controversial. They're exceedingly professional. Uh, they do their job well. You, you may recall a year ago, uh, some uh, Republican leadership demanded that the GBI uh, join with the uh, Stop the Steal uh, agenda and the GBI said, look, there is no evidence to support it and we are not going there. So I, I think their, their professionalism and independence is well known. Um, that's the, the least part of the bill I'd be spending time on. Um, Shirley Franklin, so Sam Olins essentially is relying on the uh, professionalism and objectivity, say, of Vic Reynolds, the current head of GBI, uh, who knows what that agency might look like moving forward. But Shirley Franklin, uh, the director of Doug Douglas County elections, uh, said that uh, 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 he thinks that having GBI be the first agency to look into election cases could have a chilling effect on poll workers and voters who might they f might be afraid they're going to become targets of investigations of fraud. How do you feel about this measure? Well, I'm, I mean, that is exactly what I would um, raise, is that election officials are raising questions about whether this is appropriate. And it's not clear to me whether this is whether including it in the bill is necessary. If, in fact, the GBI is available to do investigations, why, indeed, do you have to include it in the legislation? I'm not arguing on their professionalism one way or the other. Um, I certainly have experience uh, where the city of Atlanta has called on the GBI to do investigations because of all of the things that Sam has said. But, but the fact of the matter is, why is it necessary to actually add them to the bill if, in fact, the Secretary of State has the ability to reach out to them anyway. It appears to be punitive. Uh, it appears to ratchet up kind of the anxiety that voters and election officials might have um, around their activities when there is little or no, and mostly no evidence um, that, that their involvement is needed beyond what has already been used. And piggybacking off what Mayor Franklin just said, I think there might be a fear for a voter who might just have a question or need to talk to a poll worker, kind of a fear that they might be targeted by poll watchers or, or other people. You know, so what might just be an innocent mistake or an innocent question can all of a sudden be like ratcheted up to become this big narrative of fraud. Um, 
I, I don't know if that's true. One thing that will be interesting or, or kind of a big question right now, and I think some of the pushback that you are seeing from election workers is kind of there's been so many changes instituted by SB 202 last year. And initially, the reason why I, Governor Kemp said he wasn't interested in more changes before the election was just making sure that we knew how to implement this big sweeping law from last year. Uh, many changes coming through the pipeline. We really don't have a ton of experience with it beyond the mayoral elections here in Atlanta that were held um, last year. So I think there's a fear that by adding even more changes that it could become even harder to recruit and retain poll workers, especially in kind of smaller and medium-sized jurisdictions and, you know, kind of retraining people once more before another big race this year. Sam, isn't the underlying question about all this that while there are protections, as, as Tamar pointed out, this bill does offer some protections to poll workers who have been uh, who say they've had uh, instances of intimidation, harassment after the 2020 election. Um, so there's that. But isn't the underlying factor here that this is that just the very existence of this bill uh, in many people's minds across the state uh, suggests that, in fact, we do need to fight against the fraud that may have occurred during the 2020 election, which we know never happened at all. Isn't that one of the real questions about this whole measure? Yes. Uh, additionally, uh, one section that I am very concerned about uh, limits the ability of foundations to uh, mm -hmm. assist election offices. Um, and it literally says um, that if a foundation wants to give money, say, to DeKalb County to assist them with their election, uh, they have to uh, submit documentation to the state board that it would be uh, a nonpartisan initiative. Thereafter, they, if approved, they can send the money to the state board where the state board gets to choose how to spend the money. In other words, just totally disregarding the donor's intent. That has got to be um, terrible policy. So once again, per my earlier comment, not getting into the weeds with the GBI issue, that is the least part of this bill that people should be paying attention to. Uh, it, the substance of the bill, uh, I think, is very troubling. Um, and the... Um, the inability of good election offices to fully comply with these law changes is very questionable. Um, one last element of this, Shirley Franklin, if I may. Um, as, I, as we said earlier, Brian Kemp had told the Georgia Chamber he didn't want to see any new election laws this uh, session. He didn't think they were needed. He's changed his mind. And, and uh, we do know, by the way, that David Ralston has wanted the GBI to have a more direct uh, involvement in investigating uh, claims of election issue problems. Uh, so that hasn't changed at all. But, but in the long run, uh, when the governor kind of seems to reverse himself on this, it, it feels like this suggests once again that this is a play to the base and that when the base wants you to do something uh, despite how you may have initially felt about it in much the way that some Republican leaders did not want to see a, a major abortion law go forward two sessions ago, the base kind of dictates how you move forward. Yes? Um, yes. I understand that, that a governor or a mayor might change their mind. 
Um, and mm. and that assumes, I like to assume that they have new information that causes them to do that. For me, the challenge is what is what are the values we're trying to hold up? And Sam has mm. mentioned that there are other problems with the bill, and he's probably more familiar with the bill than I am. The notion that you are going to be able to implement a new set of um, regulations and requirements in a short period of time um, really is problematic. This bill is of no use if it cannot be implemented and implemented well and successfully. And it sounds as if the real question as to whether that's possible, and I don't know whether the, the, the governor is playing to that to his own values and the importance of uh, free and, and easy access to voting for qualified voters or whether he's playing to the base. The best of all worlds is if he's doing the former. If he's doing the latter, that's just not the way to get good public policy. All right, let's do this. we got to get to a final break on Political Rewind today. A lot more items are on our agenda. We'll try to get to some of them after these messages. Tamar Hellerman, Stacey Abramson, now, has now gone to federal court saying she should be able to right now take advantage of the leadership-giving committees that were established last year in law, which allowed the governor caucus leaders in the legislature uh, and and opposing candidates once they become a party's nominee to uh, raise unlimited amounts of money um, uh, fr- even during the session. Brian Kemp has already profited. I, I haven't got the figures in front of me. He's raised a lot of money during this session under those rules, although he's now been told by a court he can't use those monies until the general election if he's nominated. Nevertheless, Abrams says, I shouldn't have to wait till I have the formal nomination on May 24th. I should be able to take advantage of it now because there's nobody challenging me. Okay, all that said, the bigger question is, how is the public reacting to, once again, this enormous infusion of money, the fact that we are uh, setting up uh, systems that allow just more and more money to be poured into elections. I mean, and this has been happening bit by bit since the Citizens United decision at the Supreme Court in in 2010. Um, We saw a lot of the the federal limits get taken down piece by piece um, by Congress. And now you're seeing it kind of happening at the state level, too, this kind of dismantling of a lot of rules. What's interesting is this sort of little alliance that's formed between Stacey Abrams and uh, David Perdue to try and fight some of this. (laughs) But I think at the end of the day, even if you're opposed to the concept of dark money and kind of big money coming into races, you kind of need to adopt it to compete, or at least that's what people feel like they have to do, especially if one of these candidates has an enormous advantage, as Governor Kemp does right now. Um, The number that my colleagues reported that he's been able to raise, Bill, um, he's taken in at least $2.3 million since his leadership committee was formed in June. Um, And that's on top of $12 million that, that Governor Kemp has in his campaign account right now. So certainly a large sum of money. And if you are able, you know, if you are Stacey Abrams and able to form a leadership committee like that, I understand why she's going to court to to be able to fight that. Of course, there are Republicans who are going to, you know, go after Stacey Abrams for, you know, and and Democrats in general for railing against big money in politics and they themselves also going and raising these big sums. But that's the way of the game at this point. 
Well, we should point out, Sam Olin said, of course, Stacey Abrams knows how to raise money. She raised something like nine-plus million dollars in the last three-month reporting period alone. But but again, the issue, Sam, the larger issue of uh, just how much money is too much money in politics today? So, look, when I was when I last ran for attorney general, it was about $700,000 a week to run statewide TV. I've got to assume that's probably closer to one and a quarter million now. Mm-hmm. So the TV stations are doing really well with all these races. And the candidates want to stay on the air. So the push to raise all this money is to frankly get your message out. Um, And while I was never a fan of negative campaign ads, someone must think they work or they wouldn't run them. I personally thought the best ad two years ago was uh, Reverend Warnock with the dog. (laughs) By far, that was the best ad. But if it weren't for the uh, need to pay the bills, folks wouldn't be looking for all this money. Yeah. Shirley Franklin? Well, the cost of campaigning has just gone up. I mean, Sam's just made the point. Um, You have to be able to compete. And uh, the Citizens United um, decision by the Supreme Court has opened the door. Will we get to a point where it's so much that we'll see a reversal? I don't know. I don't think it'll come from the public. It'll have to come from the court. Um, Tamara, let me add something and then give it back to you. I always thought during my years doing local TV news reporting that it was incredibly hypocritical in TV news operations that we would do stories about the outrageous amounts of money the candidates were raising, given that they were raising it so they could advertise on our air. I suppose if you really want to do something about cutting the amount of money in politics, uh, maybe we should have a system which allows for, in addition to paid messaging, some free advertising by candidates on the air. But anyhow, go ahead with your point, Tamar. In general, in politics, I think it's really hard to get anyone in power to voluntarily give up power. Um, so to kind of agree, <laughs> let's let's all disarm a little bit on something like this. And it's just not going to happen because whoever's in power is going to say, well, the other party, when they were in power, they wouldn't do this. So I'm not going to do this. So I think it's going to be really hard. And I think on the presidential level, I don't know if people remember this, but we did have some public financing of presidential candidates Mm -hmm. that I think kind of sort of lasted until maybe 2008 uh, when Obama started raising huge money. Um, And I think now just the politics have turned where I think you know, people say, I can't believe taxpayers would spend their money on this. So let's make it all private so that only people who wanted to donate can. I just think the politics of where we are, we are now, I, I just think that's so unpalatable. And I don't think political parties would want to give up any edge that they may have either. All right. Um, Shirley Franklin, I really want to, as long as given that we have you here, want to ask you about a city of Atlanta issue. Um, you supported Andre Dickens run for mayor. Andre Dickens uh, uh, has now pretty successfully stopped, at least for the time being, the Buckhead cityhood movement. And one of the things he's doing is saying, look, give me a chance to fight the violent crime that has motivated many of those people who support cityhood. But he's got a violent crime problem all over the city. 
How does he move forward? As a former mayor, how does he deal with this issue and really make a difference? Well, it's, it's interesting that you say that. I mean, the, 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 the challenge uh, for, of violence and crime is multidimensional, as we all know. It is also the proliferation of guns. It is the impact of, um, of mental health and depression and the lack of mental health services uh, and, or, or inaccessibility of mental health services. Uh, we don't intervene early. Um, uh, the promotion of violence through other cultural um, uh, media. So somehow or another, he's got to work on all levels. He's got to do his part, though. And I think he is demonstrating that by being directly engaged with the Atlanta Police Department and the broader community to find ways to both prevent crime and to solve crimes when they are committed. Um, he, he talked a lot about increasing the number of lights and cameras around the city. But the people of Atlanta have got to come together in partnership with him. Uh, but the police department has to do its part. And that department has to be well-trained and available um, uh, to respond and to prevent. Um, can't do it without the GBI, Sam. And you can't do it without the community support. Um, but I think he's going to give the right attention to this issue. Uh, Sam Olins, we're really close to out of time, but one one aspect of what Mayor Franklin just said is, you know, mental health problems lead to some uh, violent crime. And we have to say that David Ralston has said the most important thing that he can accomplish this session is passing a sweeping mental health reform bill. Um, I suppose that's a step in the right direction in terms of that aspect of this problem. I think the speaker deserves a lot of credit for the push on House Bill 1013, the mental health bill. I think there's a couple other bills that are also very important. Those are the ones that uh, seek a social worker or mental health counselor to come with police to certain calls where you're might likely dealing with that type of situation. You know, for years there's been a lot of talk about um, equity concerning mental health, and it now seems like we're finally getting uh, closer to where we should be. So once again, a lot of credit to the speaker. All right. Sam Olins gets the last word on today's Political Rewind. Sam, Shirley Franklin, Tamar Hellerman, thank you for just a wonderful conversation. You, the show today reminds me of what a privilege it is for me to get to host a group like you uh, on the air uh, on, on this show. So thank you so much for being with us. Uh, as I mentioned a couple times now, uh, when we're off the air in just a moment here, you'll be able to listen to the Senate confirmation hearings uh, for Katenji Brown-Jackson on GPB Radio. It's also available to watch on gpb.org, our website. Um, thank you, Natalie Mendenhall, Sam Burmes-Dawes, Jesse Neiswanger, for your work, as you do every day, making this show better. We'll be back with a new edition of Political Rewind tomorrow when, among other people, Greg Bluestein will be with us, and we should give a shout-out to Greg. His book, Flipped, was finally published today, and we are very excited for Bluestein. That's it for us today, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow, and in the meantime, please take care and stay healthy. Bye-bye. <laughs>